Let Your Freak Flag Fly showcases experimental, exploratory and improvised music from around Australia and the world on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, 3cr.org.au. This program was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to Elders past and present. Show notes and previous episodes can be found at 3cr.org.au slash freakflag. about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. You're listening to Let Your Freak Flag Fly on 3CR Community Radio 855am, 3cr.org.au. And I'm going to do a bit of a special show today all about water recordings inspired and projects inspired by water and some actual underwater recordings as well. I'm going to start with one from Vicky Hallett. This is from 2021. It's called Ebb and Flow. It's a sound exploration using underwater recordings of the Barwon River, revealing aquatic bugs, fish and other hidden creatures. The ebb and flow of the cascades to the estuary, the intermingling of salt and fresh water where the eel passes on its migration, urging the listener to reflect and contemplate. This is Vicki Hallett, Ebb and Flow.
You just heard from Vicky Hallett a track called Ebb and Flow from 2021 featuring some wonderful underwater recordings. And continuing on with the theme today, which is water, I'm going to play one from Jacques Sedel. This is called The River. It's from 2009, and it's from a video. So I'll link to that video on the 3cr.org.au slash freakflag site. The video contained sound and light and was an installation at La Trobe University Visual Arts Centre in 2009. The original sound was played through a 5.1 surround system. This is Jacques Sedel, The River. You're listening to 3CR.
Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Let Your Freak Flag Fly on 3CR Community Radio, and I just played a track from Jacques Sedel, The River, from a video made in 2009. I will link to that video on the 3cr.org.au slash freakflag site. Up next, I've got some field recordings to play from you from the sea organs in Zadar in Croatia. In 2005, the architect Nikola Basic opened, opened his incredible art project called the Sea Organ of Zadar, which is a natural musical instrument that makes tones by the movement of the sea. I'll put a link on the Freak Flag page for this one too, because it's really worth seeing what this looks like as well as what it sounds like. This is a recording of the Sea Organs in Zadar, Croatia.
From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad, how tragic But it doesn't have to be that way On the burning vinyl alternative music program Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. You've been listening to recordings from the sea organs in Zadar in Croatia. And continuing with our theme of water today, I'm going to play a long one, as much of it as I can. This is from Andrea Polly and it's called Sonic Antarctica. It features natural and industrial field recordings, sonifications and audifications of science data and interviews with weather and climate scientists. The Sonic Antarctica project was designed as a radio broadcast, live performance, as well as a sound and visual installation. It features recordings of the Antarctic soundscape made during Andrea Polly's seven-week National Science Foundation residency in Antarctica during the 2007-2008 season. And I'll put a link to this project on the 3cr.org au slash freak flag site this is andrea polly sonic antarctica you're listening to 3cr
yeah. It's always hard to spot because it dries out and the markers are all faded. Things behind us actually. station. The main, the main thing that we're trying to do is, is monitoring long-term climate um, as opposed to seeing what the weather will be like the next couple days.
because you have the data doesn't mean you understand the system. It's important to come down and view the landscape, and in our case, view the glaciers and seeing how the glaciers are reacting to these changing environments. And that kind of feeds into our understanding in kind of um, non-quantitative way. is like and seeing what the weather is like there gives you an intangible sense of, of of the location and it improves your interpretation and your understanding of what your computer model is telling you or what the weather data that you're seeing is telling you. You're more fully immersed in what's happening and it provides you with a lot of clues and a lot of bits to think about. Standing outside, and you feel the gustiness of the wind, or you um, see the way the clouds are moving across the sky. It, it, they're intangible things that are providing you clues to what may be going on. This acoustic depth gauge. The one on the end there is a temperature. That little cylinder? Cylinder, yeah. Oh. And it's a radiation shield basically, so oh. basically you want to prevent it from having sunlight directly on it. Uh-huh. Underneath the boom over here on this side, uh-huh. There's like that little gold thing with a uh, gray cylinder on it. Oh yeah. That's a relative humidity. Oh, okay. So. Mm-hmm. And then inside here, there's a pressure sensor. 
measure the barorectal pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, What's this other box? That's just a okay. transformer uh, box. So oh. These two yeah, cords here are the battery. Uh-huh. Down, so they're buried right. a couple feet, three or four feet down. And then on the side is the solar panel, and then this is the power cord going into the box. As best I can tell, we have down to the bottom of the hole. Okay. Already in ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one.
I'm a weather observer. We observe cloud heights, um, the visibility, whether or not it's snowing or if there's ice grains or ice crystals, um, as well as pressure and temperature and wind. Um, I have a degree in meteorology. Applied for this job to kind of get out of that and get away from computers and get back to the weather and get back outside. So there was a while when I looked up at the sky and saw equations rather than big puffy clouds. So I'm glad that that finally went away. I think you have to love weather, obviously, to come here at all. And also, you have to, be, you have, to have a lot of attention to detail. For me, when I go outside to look, there's a moment of quiet where I just go and take everything in. So we have an antenna on the roof, that, and that, that little radio song is transmitting this data. And then so it comes out on the radio. Then we just go out up there to the modem. So we're just creating a sound that the computer can understand. And then this program just reads that and then converts it all into you know, our pressure, um, temperature as it's going up. kind of the bottom section? It's the top. Oh, okay. This is the top, and so it goes okay. all the way down there, there's balloon all the way down to there, mm. and there's parachute, and it goes up and over the truck to the payload. So what'll happen is this will get filled and it'll stand up, mm -hmm. and it'll take uh, about an 45 minutes to an hour to fill mm -hmm. completely. Mm. And then what they'll do is see that lever just by Reed's hand, that lever with the cord on it? Yep. They'll pull that, and that drum will go... Ah. And then the whole thing will just rise up <laughs> and then eventually it'll end up right up over the truck and the truck will start Excellent. to drive towards it mm -hmm. and then they'll just stop and back off and release the pins that hold the payload on the truck. It's got to get exactly They want it absolutely underneath. perpendicularly under and you can see with a little uh, oh, yeah. ball up there that's attached to the truck so you know that it's in a really good line so they're going to go straight ahead. Oh, so okay. the, the worst thing is if you get an extreme wind shift up there and it would somewhere off over to an extreme angle on the side. That's what they've been trying to wait for is the wind strength up through to that thousand feet altitude to get stable. Right, she's still putting well, off the piebald. They'll do that right till the very last minute uh -huh. and they'll start doing them every 15 minutes now instead of every 
every um, half hour, which they've been doing. And if the balloon it gets filled up, but it doesn't seem like a good idea, it's just pack no, it if, in and... If, if, well, once they put gas in the balloon, that's it. It's, yeah. The balloon it's is going. toast. Well, not necessarily uh. it's going. I mean, if the wind suddenly picked up and they had to yeah. let the gas, they, they could let the gas out by the valves. Yeah. But the, that's the end of that balloon. Yeah, but they want to save the They want to save the payload at all costs, yeah.
a model is only a caricature of or a cartoon of the reality and it will never match reality and it actually wouldn't make sense to match reality then then we don't need a model then we can as well study it uh, in reality and we're even better off and sometimes that's actually a pitfall people build too complex models and, uh, and, and, and then have to struggle with the same difficulties they would in reality, and, and the model is certainly less worse than the reality, so it would, they would better do field work. Antarctica is, is like the, the air conditioner at the bottom of the planet. You know, it's a big, huge chunk of ice, and it takes a lot to melt that ice, so it's going to be around for a long time. Mm. Um, it's going to, as it disintegrates uh, over time, though, that melting water raises sea level, and that's the one that most people know about, is sea level is is, is uh, raised by melting Antarctic ice. How dynamic is the ice boundary of Antarctica? So how fast is the boundary changing? For example, ice shelves on the margin of, of Antarctica, these are huge areas. And um, we, are, we can observe major calving events which change the boundary of Antarctica. For example, at the last ice shelf during the last 10 years or 12 years or so, 15,000 square kilometers of ice was lost. And that event happened in a very short period of time. So normally, cryosphere or glaciers, especially glaciers in Antarctica, are believed to be very stable. So what we can observe in a very short period of time is in a way unexpected. Because we thought, okay, it's just changing within hundreds of, year, hundreds of years, yeah. but now we see, okay, it, it can change within weeks. But you have to see, we need models when we wanted to see what future impacts could do to our environment. And for those reasons, uh, I believe we need the models despite all these deficiency. However, it's not that bad. Even a cartoon usually has some truth to it. And uh, even if it's distorting certain aspects or exaggerating certain ones and neglecting others, it is still uh, only a good cartoon, you would say, if it, if it matches some reality, if it, if it, if it resonates a, a string in you, uh, 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 when you when you look at it. And I think that's exactly the same we have to do in science. We have to build models which have... Uh, a relationship to reality which captures the crucial properties you're interested in in a given context. This means if you use a model in climate change it has to have different properties as if you use a model let's say to study what nutrients do and how you could fort fertilize forests or how you could get more out of plantations and so on. And that's actually in fact also the case. We have different models depending on what the purpose is for which we use. Everyone would admit that it's hard to make a model where you can say yes, 100% sure this is the way it's going to happen. But the way that it works is they run a whole bunch of different models and they run with them with all kinds of different parameters and they don't draw a line of what the temperature is going to be like. They draw an envelope and they say this is what the range of the change is going to be. And then they start looking at some of the assumptions and they, they narrow that range down to, to what is likely to be the envelope of change. And if you do that with enough, in enough different ways, you become really confident that, yes, it's going to fall within that envelope mm -hmm. because you can't even make the models go outside of that envelope. 
if you want to ridicule someone with a cartoon, you 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 draw it differently than if you want to uh, make a, a, a joke or if if you want to uh, emphasize the pleasantness of a person or whatever on which you do the cartoon. So you can imagine that in a similar way, and this means it's not just an art or it's not just a bittery. We also test our models in particular to perform well in a changing climate and that's why we use these models not only in the presence to, to um, correctly reproduce or mimic what we find uh, today we also, where we don't have that much climate change yet we use those models particularly also during past climate changes where we had big, big climate changes of a similar magnitude as we expect in for the course of this century and that is for instance at the end of the last ice age. Uh, we have data from those times. We, we've done such studies. Exactly the same thing we're trying to do with the model to reproduce uh, and simulate how we call it the change in the vegetation at that time and if we match what we found in the pollen records well then we say we have done a useful test for our model and we're ready to use it to make projections into the future. We get a lot closer to the truth with every step. So I think that's what we're doing right now with climate science, is there's more information coming up all the time. And some of the things that we don't know about, to me, are the scariest.
Oh, <laughs> what a question. <laughs> um, okay, I have to give you several answers. I'm sorry. Um, one answer is that I think as scientists, we have an obligation to inform the public who is generally also funding us. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it's funding us mm-hmm. because it gives us independence and we are neutral in our statements and we can remain that. And I think that the downside or the other side of the coin means we have to uh, provide information to the public if they are in need. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is I think there is a need for that kind of information because I have to admit as a scientist I'm also a human being I'm also a citizen of this country I'm working in and having done I I also have kids by the Mm -hmm. way and and, and by having done this research just a little anecdote when I started for this new report I was quite confident I wouldn't get uh, sort of shattered in my emotions much by what I would be doing but actually by widening my um, uh, focus on on what I'm studying and reviewing and you have to do that when you do a job like I have been doing this is mind-boggling you Mm -hmm. we we dealt with all ecosystems you know Mm -hmm. from the sea ice biome to tropical coral reefs and and uh, tundra forests uh, grasslands savanna deserts mountain ecosystems you know and usually I'm just dealing with mountain ecosystems and forests but not with deserts not with savanna not with with marine ecosystems and uh, so I, I was forced to assess a kind of literature which I usually leave aside uh, because we have to specialize, we have to compete in, within the scientific community. Now, by having done that and broadened my, my perception, I have to see, I have to admit, I was shocked. I was shocked with, by finding how sensitive many ecosystems are and how much they could be impacted by climate change in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I felt actually myself, again, as a citizen, as an individual, as a human being, an obligation to tell mm-hmm. other people who are willing to listen and uh, who are interested in this topic, and I believe everybody should be, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's their life. And, and for those reasons, uh, I think it is important to, to uh, really assess the risks we are facing and to think about uh, decisions we have to make now. Now we have to make them. We don't have mm-hmm. much time. In, in, in some respects, it's even uh, what we call five minutes after uh, noon and, uh, or midnight, and in, in another respect in terms of um, avoiding a really strong uh, climate change or a, l- a really large climate change it's not too late, but it's getting very, very um, small, this time window in, within which we can still act. That one paper about that one area on the Earth was mm-hmm. taken as evidence that all of the globe is not warming, so it was misused. And I think because of that, scientists are a little bit scared of, uh, you know, th- there's a bit of spin going on from the other side as well, just, yeah. just to try and keep it from getting out of control. Because uh, you can go out and you can find areas in the Earth that are right now, like Antarctica, not uh, warming; they're they're cooling. But that that's you know you're not going to expect the whole planet to be red. 
Sure. Um, but it's the averages. So, you know, I, I, I can get shot if I, <laughs> if I said this, you know, I, I don't want to go too far with this. Because right. I, but I think that, I think that um, it's important that both sides focus on the facts and just state, the, state what the data is, state what the interpretations are. And, and stop the spinning, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and when you do that, the story is that the globe is warming and that we are, we are in trouble, right? I, I, think, I don't see how anyone can argue against that. We have a climate crisis, and that calls for everybody, wherever they are, whatever they do, might they be artists, journalists, whatever, scientists, we have to do our part in this. And I think the, the public as well as scientists need to understand better that uh, the media is not there to uh, necessarily bring you objective information Mm -hmm. Um, they're there to sell cars and whatever ten years ago scientists were reticent to come out and speak about their science and I think more and more the message is getting through that there's a war going on essentially and especially in the last uh, yeah, about the last eight years or so there has been this war on science and, and and we've become less trusted and so we've actually had to take to the street science it's a more cultural thing mm-hmm. I think well, it is yeah. because my understanding of the role of a scientist is not someone uh, who, who tells you what the truth is mm-hmm. because as a scientist I'm, I'm more humble than that mm-hmm. I think yes we have a role we have a critical role I agree but we don't have uh, a too big role in the sense that it, it has to do with risks uh, because we have a lot of pros and cons in this issue, and without debate on that, which is value-based, there's no way we can decide. And also, by sci- as scientists, we are uh, funded for doing certain research, and we funded less for doing others, mm-hmm. and that is influencing the scientific outcomes. Not in the sense that the scientific outcomes, in whatever study you're looking at, if it's if it's well done, it, it gives you the same result, and it, there is some objectivity to it. But the the selection of topics uh, is something which is done in a dialogue with with 
the general public, with society in general. There is a contract between scientists and, and the society. The most important thing is to keep in mind that we have very good observational tools and that we have that we can observe a high complexity and a high variability and to understand that um, mm. many observations on the they, they might look controversial but because of the complexity of the system they actually mm. if you look closer to it they actually fit together mm. so I I would say it's important to keep in mind for the public to filter out that noise in that press releases and in that reports in newspapers. That's very important and to keep the big picture in mind. people's understanding of time is so pathetically thin and uh, insignificant. Uh, human life scales, like I uh, think some mm -hmm. things just drive you crazy, like there'll be people talking about like a forest fire, for example, and they'll say, you know, we shouldn't let these forest fires burn because, you know, it takes, you know, a hundred years for that, you know, my, it'll never come back, mm -hmm. which is just pathetically stupid. Mm. In the life of a forest, a forest fire is a second Yeah. Compared to your life. The point is, is that you may see that as devastation and your grandchildren may see that mm -hmm. as devastation and their grandchildren may see that as devastation. But the trees would come back on mm -hmm. their own time scale, not your time scale. So human beings in general have this horrible understanding of how old the earth is, how slowly some processes work, which goes back to like why you shouldn't fuck it up. Mm. It takes, it's, you know, we could completely screw the earth up and it would come back. The problem is that it might not come back for a million years. Now to the earth, a million years, who cares? Oh. It's nothing. But right. in human history, you fucked yourself. There's definitely going to be shifts. And, you know, in those shifts, some places are going to be better places to live. Mm -hmm. some, but places are going to be worse to live. And it's going to be a, a reorganization of, of human civilization. I mean, it's, it's a big impact. Um, and, and I think that part is, is really difficult to predict. And it's not, you know, that's not a scientific prediction. That's more of a sociological prediction, is how that would all shift around and how that would impact economies and so on. But let me come back to, if, yeah. you, if, you, if I may, to the smoking gun. Okay. It's not a smoking gun, it's a smoking machine gun. Oh. So one bullet was already yes. fired, and there are many more in the magazine which mm. are ready to be fired as well. And unless we do something, we cannot avoid these bullets to come as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue. And that's my second point.
-hmm. A lot of people consider climate change as being sort of a monolithic monolithic, uh, thing to, to deal with. It's not the case. That's, for me, the second most important thing people should learn about and, and think about. And that is, we have a choice. The choice means we can still avoid a very uh, large climate change. And a very large climate change is one where we risk to trigger runoff processes which will feed back on the climate and speed up the climate change in a way which is much more scary mm-hmm. than what the more moderate projections indicate. And for those reasons, I believe uh, it is very important. I don't get panicked about climate change because it does happen all the time. I get panicked about, like I said, the things we don't know. If we push this system so far in one direction, can we ever get it back? And what are the consequences? I think that the models can only tell us so much, and they don't tell us about these switches that can throw us off. The science is the asking of questions. That's the science. That's where the brilliance and the intelligence and all that comes in. Science is the asking of important questions. The more we learn, the more questions we have. So that things spread out and, and the questions, more people are answering the questions and then we get more precise and, uh, and we uh, criticize each other's work so that we can hone it into something that uh, is totally objective right. or as close to totally objective as we can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the artist is, his tool is the metaphor and, uh, and if he can relate this information, whatever he's, he or she's trying to convey to the biggest audience, then that's what they're after. We're all part of the problem. We're all part of the solution as well. You know, I don't know the answer to those. I think about those questions all the time, but I don't know. I don't, honestly don't know the answer. And I don't have the... I don't know. I, I have a scientific mind, and a scientific mind needs data, and I don't have the data.